You're listening to the Boise Community Church Podcast. We desire to be a people who are following Jesus authentically and missionally. For more information, please visit boisecommunitychurch.org. So yeah, turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be getting started in verse 30. And there's this thing that's interesting I think we all have this natural desire to be great, to be truly impressive. You know, maybe that's physically or intellectually or spiritually. No one's goal in life is just to be mediocre. Like nobody ever sets out on life and is like, you know what? I just kind of want to do my own thing and just kind of be blah in life. So I was thinking, what does it mean to be great? And so I looked it up. Great means to, to be considerably above normal or average. And as a parent, when I think of my children, that's something that I really want for my kids. I want them to be great at whatever it is they are giving themselves to or driving towards. And it's same for myself. Like I don't want to pursue things with a mediocre spirit. And the question really comes to us is what is it, where do we find the definition or the value of what it means to be great? Because I can talk to different people in my life and they will all tell me different things on what it means to be great. For example, I can talk to my boss at work and he's going to tell me one thing. Hey, you need to make money and just, just kill it and do all these things and that's what's going to make you great. I can talk to my friend at the gym who says, man, if you can just get yourself in the like the prime physical aspects, man, that's what's going to make you great. I can talk to my wife who can tell me something very different than those two. Man, showing up and being a loving father and a loving husband and caring and, and nurturing our family, that's what will make you great. And so with this reality, the question co- comes to us is where do we find the value of what makes us great because they each answer the question based on what their value is in the relationship. But if we claim to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus or a Christian, we should be asking ourselves, what's his value? What makes us great in the eyes of Jesus? And so with that, let's dive into our text Mark chapter 9, verse 30, or starting in verse 30. Then they, being the disciples and Jesus, left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Verse 38, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name 
can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. Verse 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble will be better for them if a large millstone were, millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. And so Jesus is traveling with his disciples through Galilee, and he doesn't want anyone to know where he is. Why is that? Well, let's look at it. Notice what is going on here. They're walking along the road with Jesus. He's teaching, but they're arguing. And I don't know about you, when I'm arguing, it doesn't matter who I'm arguing with, I am rarely truly able to listen to what the other person is saying. Or what's going on around me when I'm in an argument. My emotions are flared. My, you know, in the foster care world, they talk about your lid being flipped and you're just seeing red and you're just not fully engaged. And so there's this idea, right? These guys are walking with Jesus and they're not really catching what's going on. Jesus isn't simply talking to them about something that's kind of insignificant in this moment. He's not just saying, hey, you know, this is why the sky's blue or all these different things. He's trying to prepare them for what's coming. He's trying to let them know, hey, there's a really difficult road ahead that you're about to walk. I'm letting you know and I'm giving you the foresight and the ability to know, hey, this is what's coming. And so... What's interesting is the disciples are lost in an argument about what it means to be great. They're so caught up in a conversation that's happening around them. And quite frankly, they do exactly this. They just miss it. And I wonder in our lives, if we take a moment to pause and reflect, is there moments where God is trying to speak to us, trying to guide us, trying to give us a heads up? But we're so caught up in what is going on around us that we miss it. We're caught in the drama of what's happening in our lives, in our jobs, in our families, in the, our friendships, in our worries. And we can do exactly that. We can miss it. And so the disciples know they miss it. And they're too afraid to ask because they didn't want to seem silly or dumb. You know, they didn't want to come out and say, Jesus, I don't understand what you're saying. Even though Jesus is saying it very plainly. And so as they get into this town, into this house, Jesus asks them a question. And he says, hey, what were you guys arguing about on the road? And they all get really quiet. And I just feel like this is that moment when, like, your parent catches you doing something and you were talking about something you shouldn't have been talking about, and they're, like, giving you that look, like, hey, so what was that? 
And they're just like silent, like, I'm not owning this. And so they're silent. They're looking around at each other kind of awkwardly because they know they missed his teaching. But now they know that he knows they missed his teaching. And so Jesus then describes openly what it means because he knew that they were arguing about who it, who, what it meant to be great. He says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And then Jesus takes an opportunity not just to state this as a fact, because in, here in the West, you know, in 2023, this is a, we, especially in the church, we have this idea very well ingrained in the church culture of like, yes, be the servant of all. But Jesus takes it a little further. He doesn't just state this as a, a statement. He goes and he takes the opportunity to do an object lesson with his disciples. Those of you that are educators will appreciate the, the idea of an object lesson where he literally takes a child and he sets him in the middle of the room and everybody's kind of looking at Jesus like, what are you doing? Why are we, why is this kid here? Because what Jesus was doing in this moment was he was showing them something because children were viewed very differently than they are today back in the first century. And their culture, children a lot of times were seen as a necessity to survive as a family. If you ran a business or a farm of some kind, you would have a lot of children because you needed help taking care and, and actually maintaining the footprint of, of your family. And they loved their children, but they were also seen more as an essential part of keeping the family going. Socially, children were actually seen as on the same level as slaves in that day because they did have slavery in that time. And which, to be clear and to clarify, the slavery that they had in ancient Israel was very different than the slavery that we had in the United States and the South. Beware, the, the United States slavery was based on race and, and a tearing down of, of a status and saying that anyone that had this particular color of skin was less valuable. In Israel, you would anchor, sorry, in ancient Israel, those that came into slavery were, were because they were in financial hardship. And at the end of the seven years of becoming a slave, they actually had the opportunity to leave. So once you were a slave, it wasn't like, hey man, you're a slave forever. Like, this is it. And it wasn't based on your race. It was based on, man, I just can't, I can't make things float anymore. I need to I need to put myself under another family to, to work their land and to take care of things so that we can survive. And so a lot of times people would treat their slaves very well because they wanted them to stay. And some, a lot of times slaves would. They would stay with the family if they were treated really well. And so Jesus is placing this child in the middle of the room and he's saying, you want to be great, be the servant of all. Or in other words, be the slave to all. Be like this child. Be on the same level as this child, which in the disciples' mind would blow their mind because they'd be like, what? And then in case they weren't getting it, he takes the child into his arms and embraces the child. And he says, be the one that's going to receive the children. That's going to want the children. And like I said, so children obviously have a very different social status than they did in the first century in Israel than they do today. 
I would say in our day, we almost borderline worship our children. But the, the power of this moment, of what's going on, if we were to put this into our context here today, because it really doesn't have to do with children. It isn't saying, hey, have faith like a child or anything like that. What's going on in the context for us here today is he's saying receive and care for those that our culture sees as a, as a nuisance or as an issue and are not worth more than turning a blind eye to. The ones that our culture doesn't want because they don't see any real value in them. Because it's definitely not our kids. And so we need to ask ourselves, who are these people? Who are the marginalized and who are those that are outside today? Is it the houseless? Is it those people that that live in the streets, either by choice or by necessity? Is it those that have severe special needs and we just feel awkward in, in engaging with them? Is it the elderly? Is it the addicts? When I talk to my kids, I go, is there children that are just, you know, they're, they're kind of by themselves. Kylie does a really great job of, of encouraging our kids to seek people out, to find those that need friends, to love on and encourage, to be Jesus to them. And to make it even more applicable for us, because that we can be like, okay, yeah, like I can get behind like the homeless or I can get behind this because that, that's not really in my wheelhouse. I'm not like engaging with, you know, houseless people all the time. But here's the deal. It's the person that is not worth your time. It could be a coworker. It could be a student. It could be a family member. It could be that parent that you really don't like at pickup and you, because you don't see eye to eye with them. Jesus' value for greatness is very clear. Jesus' value for greatness is service. Serving those who are not seen is valuable. But in the reality, all of mankind is valuable because all of mankind is created in the image of God. So maybe you're serving, or maybe you're serving as you bringing a sandwich to a houseless person you see on a regular basis, or doing the unthinkable and stopping and having a conversation with that person. Learn their name. Learn where they're from. Not saying you have to like take them down the Romans road or do anything crazy. Make them feel seen. My kids are actually really good at this. At Walmart that we get the Walmart that we go to frequently, there's a few people that my kids always say hi to. There's this African woman. She's always in the front area by the carts, and she just kind of waves. And she, the kids always go nuts and say hi to her and are just like super excited, mainly my little two. And then there's an older man whose name is Morgan and he's this greeter. And my kids really love this guy. I always laugh when I talk about him because it's, it's just really funny to me. And every time we're there, they have to stop and talk to him on the way in and on the way out. So it's always like a little bit like a two minute interaction every time we're going in and going out. So yesterday, in fact, we were walking in for a few things and Peter you know stands up we were just getting our cart and we kind of turn around and he sees him he like sees him locks eyes with him and he just stands up and he's like there he is and I'm like whoa what are we doing man and then Peter just like is super excited he's talking to him and he's really excited he's like hi Morgan da, 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 da. they're getting all excited about stuff and Peter's eating this bag of chips and he's like holding his chips out to him 
Morgan's like, no thanks, I'm good. And it'd be easy to be like, hey, Peter, dampen it down. Like, this guy's working. You're, you're kind of over the top. Like, he's probably busy. But in reality, when I really think about it, and maybe he is. He could totally be really, like, maybe my kids are really annoying this older man. I don't think so. Because in reality, I think maybe my children yelling and smiling and waving at this man as we enter the store is a moment that this man can be feel like he is seen and valued. Because when was the last time you were excited to see the greeter in Walmart? Where you were like, oh my gosh, Morgan's here. And you just run up to him and you're like, hey! Now if you all go there, you're going to be like, there's Morgan. <laughs> but this is the thing. We do, we walk past these people. They're dispensable. Because we really don't care if they're there or not, if we're honest. But my kids, they do care. They see a beauty in this older man. I don't know anything about him. Other than that, Morgan is not actually his name. It's his middle name. <laughs> and then Peter thought he was even cooler because that's his middle name. <laughs> but this is what greatness is. It's not this like grand, powerful moment. It's these simple, small, realistic acts where we can bring the kingdom of God here in Boise. Because greatness is inviting. Because true greatness isn't cliquish. It, it, it has an inclusive instinct. The disciples had seen another person who was walking around casting out demons in Jesus' name. And if you remember last week, they weren't able to do that. You know, they were doing the things that Jesus did. And the disciples come to this man and they, they challenge him. They're like, hey, stop. Don't do this. You're not one of Jesus' disciples. We're Jesus' disciples. Why do they do this? Well, let's look at the verse again in verse 38. It should be on the screen. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now let's look at it in the ESV because I think it's a better description. Verse 38, John said to them, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Notice this part. Because he was not following us. In the ESV it says he was not one of us, so he's not one of the twelve but in, I actually think the ESV is probably the more correct translation of it, where he's saying, because he wasn't following us. Notice that. Because he was not following us. That's the wrong way to state this, this sentence. It should read, because they were not following you, but they were following Jesus. In their mind, this man had gone rogue and was doing something wrong because he wasn't in a, an accredited disciple. He didn't have Jesus's Stamp is like, hey, we're one of the 12, baby. Just like, we're awesome. And so Jesus corrects them saying, hey, guys, he's doing a good thing. They can't, this man or whoever cannot do good and then speak evil of me at the same time. It was the other side of the coin of what Jesus challenged the Pharisees when they said Jesus cast out demons by other demons, which led to his famous words of a house divided cannot stand. It's the same thing. If a house is doing good and bad, it's fighting itself. If the house is doing good and, you know, and good, it's good. If it's doing bad and bad, it's bad. It's pretty clear. Um, just pure logic. 
And so Jesus doesn't care about where they're from. He didn't he cared about what they did. And he says this statement where he says, those who aren't against us are on our side. And I remember when I was 20 years old, our church joined this this group of other pastors in our city called City Ministries, where we were a group of pastors who would meet up together and pray together and serve together. And it was kind of this really interesting dynamic. Those of you that aren't haven't been in like church leadership, churches are very interesting. There's a lot of ego in a lot of churches. And I would say, you know, I'm... I'm a human too, so I have it as well. Um, And this story is not a great story of me. But (laughs) I remember in one of my quiet times, we're joining this thing, and I'm kind of like, whatever, this is dumb. So I'm in my quiet time, and I'm reading and praying and doing these things. I feel the Spirit speak to me and say, hey, you should go to this retreat with the other pastors. And I'm like, that's dumb. That's a waste of time. I'm not doing that. But I went. So, So when I was there... It was really interesting because you had guys that obviously were trying to be the next super dynamic mega church pastor and they just were not landing it and it was challenging. You had the old school faithful Anglican pastor, the pastor who was really into the Holy Spirit and made everybody feel a little bit uncomfortable. And then you had those other guys that were like, and then there was us. You know, we were the, the right ones in our minds. We knew how to do ministry right. And so I'm with these men for about four days, and I'm sitting with them, I'm eating with them, we're reading the scriptures together, we're having very awkward and difficult conversations together. And in that time, I realized something really powerful. Because in that moment, I realized, like, we all are followers of Jesus in this moment. It looks different, absolutely. Absolutely. You have high church and, you know, we were a non-denominational church. And so it's like tons of order, not a lot of order. And it just felt very interesting because I realized we all follow Jesus a little differently and that's okay. And the moment where that came was really at the end of our retreat. Where this old Anglican pastor came and served communion to all of us. And there's like, there's not a ton of us. Like there's like nine Nine guys in a room. That's a, it's a very intimate setting to be together for, for 24 hours a day for four days. And I remember it very clearly as he had his collar on and his robe and he was serving me communion. And he said, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. It didn't matter our background or our influences, because in that moment, we were all simply recipients of Jesus' grace and forgiveness as children of God. And this is the beauty of what the gospel does, is it brings us together regardless of our social status, our financial status, our own egos, or our upbringing, or our knowledge, or our skills, because all are welcome at at the foot of the cross, because we're all on equal footing at the foot of the cross because we're all in need of what Jesus did of dying on the cross and rising again on the third day. So if that is the spirit of what Jesus is after, may we extend kindness in whatever ways we can because we know that what we are doing, we're not going to lose our reward by being kind to those of 
other parts of the Christian faith. And all of a sudden, Jesus kind of shifts gears with the disciples. We're, we're reining it in at this point. Where he's been talking about these outward actions of his followers, and he's now going to bring a severe and sober warning about our own character. Jesus shows that the way that you and I live matter. And that greatness requires honesty. Verse 42 says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were cast into the sea. And so if the way that we live causes others to stumble, Jesus uses this graphic language to illustrate the seriousness of his point. There were two types of millstones. Jesus is very clear in the Greek that it's a large millstone. There was a small one that you know women would use in a kitchen to kind of grind things up and you know make manna or not manna, but you know I don't know what you would make with it, but <laughs> they grind stuff up to make food to eat. And then there was a large one that you would use, and they would use a donkey to actually pull it, and it would crush everything up, and that was how they would make it at like a commercial type level. And so Jesus makes this point where he says, man, if you're causing people to stumble with the way that you're living, a large millstone should be tied around your neck and we should like mafia style you and throw you out in the middle of this lake, which is kind of intense. To be clear, I believe Jesus is using hyperbole here. So we're not going to go around like dunking people out in the Boise River. But it should bring a soberness to the way that we live. As a pastor, I'm held to a high responsibility in pastoring our community. I'm called to pastor in a way that I am not causing unnecessary stumbling to happen in the lives of people around me. And I can tell you, since I've planted this church, there has been numerous occasions where I've had to sit in very uncomfortable conversations and lift someone else up even though my heart is hurting in the moment and I'm not getting an I'm sorry back because it's not about me. It's about Jesus and about wanting to be a pastor that doesn't create damage and wounding in other people but lifts and bring, but a pastor that brings healing and lifts people up. And so the question is, how do we know if we're causing people to stumble? I think it takes self-awareness, but I also think, think it takes a new level of honesty. Recently, I've been getting back into some of my old practices that I did in the season when I was in a recovery ministry. And when I was in recovery, one of the things that I had to do was I had to read a couple pages out of the, the AA Big Book every night. And this week, during one of my readings, I came across this in a section describing how AA works, and so I wanted to share it with you. It'll be on the screen. It says, those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. It's such a heavy word. Then it continues on, it says, they are not at fault. They seem to have been been they seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands 
rigorous honesty. This is one of the practices that obviously for recovery is essential, but even more so, I think, for us as followers of Jesus, that we need to learn the art of living with rigorous honesty. Who am I really? What am I really doing? What's really going on deep in my soul? Rigorous honesty for the disciples would have looked like them going, hey, Jesus, I don't understand what you're saying, man. You're talking about dying. I don't get it. Look at where Jesus goes with this, starting in verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands than to go to hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Jesus is making it very clear. Take sin seriously. Because there are consequences for us living lives that are unchecked or unexamined. can't remember who said it, but the, the unexamined life is a one that is not worth living. I think somebody said Socrates. But <laughs> because sin will always have real life consequences and bring real pain and real hurt and ultimately spiritual death. It's not something we play with. It's not like this like toy poodle that we kind of look at and we're like, oh, it's cute. It's just kind of this thing that's there. It should be treated as a mere, it should not be treated as a mere cut on our sin, but a cancer that is deep within our soul and that if it's left untreated, it will slowly kill us from the inside. Jesus takes it seriously. Jesus talks about being kept out of the kingdom because we were unwilling to deal with our sin in a serious way. Where he says, your hand, so the things you do, your foot, the places you go, your eye, the things you want. If any of these three cause you to sin or cause you to stumble or stumble someone else, cut it off. Cut it out of your life. Jesus is obviously talking metaphorically here. He is, his desire is not encouragement for mutilization or self-harm. For those of you that may be literalists, but it's a picture of seriousness that we should set out on dealing with sin in our own lives. But maybe there are things that you need to change in your life. You know deep down in your heart you're living in habitual sin. There's things that need to be repented of, that need to be cut out of your life. Because the number one thing we always tell ourselves deep down in our spirit, because my spirit will tell it to me too. It's like, ah, this isn't that bad. This is my one thing. I'm better than like that, that guy over there. But are you better than Jesus? Do you look like Jesus? In my own story, there's been a lot of things I've had to cut out of my life. It's been unhealthy relationships, unhealthy practices, bad habits. It's been allowing Jesus to really be the Lord of my life. 
Do I really care what Jesus says about my sexual morality? Do I really care what Jesus says about being honest? Do I really care what Jesus says is important with my time and my money? Do I really care what Jesus says about people? Do I really want to allow Jesus and his word to be an authority in my life? Because it's one thing to say it, and it's another to do it. And as I close, I wanted to, to practice vulnerability with you. Because I think it's hard for us as pastors to, to stand and show our flaws. Because we're like, how much of my flaws do I show? And as I stand before you today, I'll be the first person to say I am absolutely a work in progress. And I have a very long way to go. Because personally, I do feel like I'm in a season where God is cutting things out. I'm oftentimes, if you see me in my home life, I'm in a rush. And because of that, I can be unkind and I can be unloving with my words and with my tone. And it hurts those that are the most dear to me, my wife and my children. And I rush because I'm anxious, because I'm not doing enough, because I'm not enough. And I share this with you, not for pity. I share this because this is what I, I want to model what I think this is supposed to look like. And I don't want to make up a story, but I want to actually be vulnerable with our church. And I want to be authentic about what's going on in my own life and my own journey with Jesus. And I'll admit, it's not easy to fix and cut these things out. And the hardest part is that it's not a victimless thing. It does hurt those close to me, like I said. It can hurt my wife, it can hurt my children, it can hurt my friends that I love deeply. And this is why the Puritan pastor John Owen, where he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so I want to I kind of float that out and ask you to really consider your own life right now, your own story. I want to allow the Holy Spirit a moment and encourage you to pause and reflect. To ask, is there an area that needs to be cut out of your life where repentance is actually needed? To actually turn from how you are living and turning towards Jesus and his way of life. And so I'm going to give a few moments, and I will also before I do that, though, I want to say, I think some of you know what you need to change. And I want this to be a moment, not of guilt, but a moment where the Spirit speaks and gives you courage to follow through on those things. Because I don't believe Jesus' words are a harsh slap but I believe they are a gentle hand picking someone up that has fallen 
And so with that, I want to pause and, and give you a few moments to just allow the Spirit to speak to you. So feel free to close your eyes, put your phone to the side, or set your notes to the side, and simply ask, Jesus, is there something that you want to cut out of my life, out of my, my story? And so church, as we close, for us to be great, we will need to practice rigorous honesty with ourselves. Not calling ourselves to do what is easy or to justify ourselves, but to allow the Holy Spirit to really shape us into the image of Jesus. And that's difficult. That's hard. And it's not something we do in a day or a week or a month or a year, but it's something that is done over decades. And so may we faithfully come back to that place and allowing Jesus to be the Lord of our lives. Because the way of greatness with Jesus is this. Be a servant to all. Welcome your brothers and sisters in the faith and take your sin seriously and deal with it seriously. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching from Boise Community Church. To find more resources and information about Boise Community Church or to give to the mission of Boise Community Church, please visit us online at boisecommunitychurch.org. If you were encouraged by today's podcast, please rate and review it so more people can discover the hope and joy of Jesus' love.